people have been drawn to Venice for centuries. Nearly 300 years ago, it was known as the pleasure capital of Europe. It was notorious. It was sort of like the Las Vegas of Europe. Casanova came of age in that environment. Coming up, Lawrence Burgreen tells us the real story of Giacomo Casanova and 18th century Venice. Today, pressures on Venice come from an overflow of tourists, and locals are being squeezed out of the city. Cities in general, and Venice in particular, were not created for tourists. They were created for citizens. Salvatore Settis recommends how Venice can avoid becoming its own worst enemy. For another side of Italy, Sicily offers great food and scenery, ancient landmarks, and a high-spirited personality, thanks to plenty of sunshine and a nightly stroll around town. Remember, in Sicily, we have a great weather. Most of the time, we spend this outside. We don't like to live in our apartments. We'll take you from Sicily to Venice and into the world of Casanova. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. They used to call Venice Europe's Sin City. Back in the 18th century, the legendary Giacomo Casanova had something to do with that. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, historian Lawrence Burgreen tells us what Casanova's world of racy parties and wealthy self-indulgence revealed about a powerful city-state in the midst of decline. Today, Venice is still one of the world's most beloved cities. But can the floods of tourists that overwhelm its streets and squares be loving it to death? An Italian professor who's known as the conscience of Italy cautions us about what must be done to preserve the character of Venice before it's too late. Let's start the hour in the far south of Italy, where abundant sunshine, dramatic scenery, and an exuberant welcome are just part of the workaday charm of the island of Sicily. Tour guide Tommaso Ponte joins us now to outline the essentials of Sicily. Welcome, Tommaso. Thank you very much. Grazie mille, Rick. Now, Tommaso, if I'm coming to Sicily for my first time, and, and you're my tour guide, and I've got 10 days or something, what are the obvious major things? Not the hidden gems, but just what are the key famous sites to see? First of all, I would start my tour from Palermo. I would spend a couple of days in That's Palermo. That's the big city. The big city. I mean, when you are in Palermo, you are in the city number five of Italy. You are in a city where we have about one million of visitors. So big city, but beautiful from a monumental point of view. From there, I would go to Agrigento. Agrigento with the Valley of the Temples. Wow. The this mo- is Greek, isn't it? 500 exactly. years BC. I work with many archaeologists. Every time I work with the archaeologists, they say, you know what, Tommaso, in Sicily you have the most well-preserved Greek temple of the world. You should not go to Greece to find good temples. You should come to Sicily. So actually, <laughs> scholars will admit this. They know ancient Greek architecture very well, and they say Sicily, has you can best. make the case, has the best. Absolutely, especially Agrigento. Agrigento with the Valley of the Temple. The Valley of the Temple is one of the most visited archaeological sites of all Italy. And that's just, uh, what, an hour or two away from uh, Palermo? One hour and 30 minutes from Palermo, okay. yes. Then, then where do you go? From there, I would move to the east. The next city that I would find to the east is Syracuse, the city of Archimedes, the mathematician. Archimedes, okay. Absolutely lived there. He worked there. He was killed there. And you see the Baroque style because Syracuse in the 1700s was affected by a big earthquake. So the city was rebuilt in Rococo or Baroque, Sicilian Baroque style. Okay, so a tragedy uh, led to the rebuilding of the city in a more modern style, Baroque or Rococo. Exactly. And tragedy is also part of the Greek culture because in Syracuse we have the National Institute of Greek dramas. So you can do both Greek and Baroque. So how can you say it's a Greek city? It's, It's in Sicily in Italy. 
I mean, uh, Sicily in Italy, I mean, we have uh, many Greek settlements. Imagine that the Greeks settled down in Sicily in the 8th century before Christ. That's right. Southern Italy and Sicily was sort of a Greek colony back in before Roman times. Exactly. And it was even called Magna Graecia. Magna Graecia, even bigger than Greece itself. So greater Greece exactly. in, included Sicily. Exactly. Athens and Syracuse, they were in competition, the one against the other, the Peloponnesian War. Remember, oh, right. Syracuse was allied of Sparta, Athens, and then they were always fighting between them. And Syracuse defeated many, many times the Athenians. And then from there, they would complete the tour of Sicily in one week or 10 days with Taormina, the gem of Sicily. Remember that Taormina was chosen in the 1800 in the Grand Tour of Europe, like the last destination. And the Grand Tour of Europe, many English said, and Goethe said, you cannot understand Italy without Sicily and without Taormina. So this is the Molto Romantico. Molto Romantico, la città romantica. So you can go to Amalfi Coast, you yeah. can go to Capri, and you can go to Taormina, Taormina in, Sicily, in Sicily, which has a remarkable uh, Greek theater. Theater, yeah, Greek-Roman theater, built mm. by the Greek and rebuilt by the Romans. Mm. So again, Greek and Roman architecture, always there and always visible to you. Of course, I would add to this tour from Taormina, I would add Mount Etna, the highest and most active volcano of Europe. 11,000 feet erupting and erupting. You can see the lava floating from the volcano. This is something really amazing. I mean, you don't see this every day. And you know, you see the lava, you see the snow, you see the blue color you of the ocean. You mean you see the hot red lava in front of your very eyes? Yes. I mean, we have in some days in some eruptions, okay? Yeah. But when the eruptions are more intense, you can see this from a distance. You can see this from Taormina. But if you actually visit, you can go with a guide up to the, near the top? Near the top. They the, take the you crater. with a, a, a yes. car, a jeep? Yes, a jeep, the cable car and the jeep. But you don't see really the lava because this is quite dangerous. I mean, you mm -hmm. cannot approach the lava, but you see some volcanic activity like steam, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, and all this kind of activity. 11,000 feet, that's quite high. Yeah, it's very high and a spectacular view, especially in a clear day. I mean, the view that you can have there is uh, from the valley, the plain of Catania. In some clear day, you can even see the island of Malta or a group of archipelago of islands, which is Amazing. Of, of Messina, which is called the Aeolian Islands. Stromboli, the volcano and other islands will be completely visible from Mount Etna. I was very charmed by the town of Cefalu. Yes, Cefalu is beautiful, uh, still is off the beaten path destination of Sicily. Okay, so that would be one of the offbeat destinations. Yes. C-E-F-A-L-U. Uh, exactly, it's a beautiful Cefalu. We call Cefalu also the Club Mediterranean City because uh, this is a preferred, the favorite destination for all French. When French goes on vacation in Sicily, Cefalu is the main destination. Is that right? Yeah, the main language is French. Tommaso Ponte is our guide to the highlights of Sicily right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Tommaso's website is sunway.it, and it includes information about his tours of Sicily and the nearby Aeolian Islands. And when I think of Sicily, Tommaso, and what you were all describing there, I think of so many layers of history. You, you talked about ancient Greek, but there's also many more layers because Sicily was invaded by so many civilizations. Very quickly, if you were to dig down through the history, how many cultural influences do we have because of invasions? 18 different dominations. 18? Yes. I was thinking five or six, 18. No, 18 different dominations, 18 different civilizations we had in the Mediterranean. They called Sicily with the name home. This is our home. I mean, we had the Greek 
and the Carthaginians, and then we had the Romans. Sicily was a Roman province, and then we had the Byzantine, and then we have the Arabs, and then we had the Normans, and then we had the Angevins, and then we had the Aragonese. What else? Angevins, Aragonese from Aragon, is that Spanish? Yes, Spanish. Okay, okay. And then we had the marriage between Isabella of Castilla and Ferdinand, the union of the kingdom, and Sicily for about six centuries was part of Spain. This was part of the Spanish kingdom. 600 years. Yes, that's why we have the longest siesta of the world in Sicily. <laughs> Our siesta is four hours, five hours in the afternoon. So if you come to Sicily in the afternoon, most of the time monuments could be closed. But no, I mean, the most touristic places, they are not closed that you can enjoy. And then we had, since 1861, the Italians. So we are, since 153, 54 years, Italians. But we were Spanish for 600 years. So when you come to Sicily, you come to Italy. Of course, we are part of Italy now, but it's a very different part of Italy. So completely. how does that affect the culture? Is it confused or is it multifaceted? Multifaceted, for sure. I mean, uh, you cannot say I'm a pure Sicilian because I don't know. In my DNA, probably there is blood which is from the Arab countries or from the Norman sides. I mean, I'm completely mixed up. Even our language is different. In Sicily, we speak Sicilian. If you can understand Italian, if you can read Italian, forget that you can understand a word in Sicilian. No. <laughs> is that right? No, because it's a completely Sicilian different... Sicilian is a clear dialect. A clear, yeah, it's very clear. Tommaso, you've explained all of the rich culture in the obvious ways. Now talk about hill towns in Sicily. Like, I'm charmed by hill towns in southern Spain and in Tuscany and in the Istrian Peninsula in Croatia. In Sicily, do you have hill towns? Yes, we have a lot of hill towns because when you think about Sicily, you think about an island, you think about the coastline, so you think that the coastline are much better, much nicer. Well, I don't agree with that because the hill town of Sicily are some towns that are really off the beaten track. If you go there as a tourist, probably you'll be the only tourist there. For instance, a town which is in the province of Messina is called Montalbano Elicona, beautiful castle from Frederick II of the mm. 12th century. We have another eagle town called Ganji. Well, very curious this town because a couple of years ago, the mayor of Ganji sold the house which were not used from one euro, one house for one euro. But the obligation was if you want to buy the house, you have to restore the house. So this was restore, restoration works. Smart mayor. Yes. And, of course, invest a lot of money. And then, of course, if you want to use it, you can use it. If you want to spend your vacation, you can spend your vacation. But, again, to improve and increase the tourism. Tommaso, in a, in a little hill town, and I imagine there's countless beautiful, sleepy, charming little hill towns, is there some easy way to enjoy the passeggiata? Is it a, a sort of an open welcome to be part of the social scene, the, the strolling in the streets in the early evening hours? This is actually the most important thing that we do in the small hill town, in small uh, village of Sicily. The passeggiata is part of our culture. And you cannot be Sicilian if you don't do your passeggiata. Remember, in Sicily, we have a great weather. Most of the time we spend this outside. We don't like to live in our apartments. I mean, we live in our apartments just to sleep and to cook. Otherwise, most of the time is outside because for 345 days a year, we have the sunshine. This is the island of the sunshine. So how can you live in a small apartment if you have the sunshine outside? So that's passeggiata is part of our culture. So you find for sure, I guarantee 100% that you find the passeggiata at the stroll. 
I mean, you see kids even at midnight with the parents having the passeggiata. So this is very common for us. I have so many good memories in Sicily during the cool of the evening hours with the passeggiata. In fact, I stayed in an agriturismo once in the interior of Sicily, and I was very impressed by the, the richness of the culture, the cuisine, the heritage, the farming. And you get to experience that when you're a traveler staying in a bed and breakfast in a farmhouse called an agriturismo, and there are plenty of those in Sicily. Yes, uh, you forgot probably the wine. And the wine was a big part of it. I mean, we were surrounded by vineyards. Yeah. Absolutely. Wine is one of, uh, of the main kind of uh, drink that you have. I mean, you, we say in Italian, fiumi di vino, river of wines. River of wines on your table. I mean, we don't pay attention about wine. Sometimes when you go to Sicily, you could pay water more expensive than wine. Tommaso Ponte, mille grazie for a little better understanding of Sicily. Can you give me, just to finish off our conversation, in your dialect of Italian, a greeting for when I will dream about coming to Sicily. Benvenuto in Sicilia, a Sicilia e bedda. Grazie a tia. Uh, welcome to Sicily. Sicily is beautiful, and thank you very much to you. <laughs> All right. I'll see you sometime in Sicily. Mille grazie. Grazie. Up next, it's Venice. We'll explore Casanova's Venice of the 18th century in a bit, but first, one of Italy's foremost social critics warns us what must be done soon to save Venice from itself. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What's happening to Venice? The historic and beautiful city they called La Serenissima includes more than a hundred small islands divided by its famous canals. But the city's population is a third of what it used to be back in the 1950s. However, you'd never tell by the swarms of tourists that choke the squares and the pathways of the city. That's precisely what our next guest argues is Venice's problem. Some people call him the conscience of Italy. Dr. Salvatore Settis is an emeritus professor of classical art and archaeology at one of Italy's most important graduate schools in Pisa. He's recently published an analysis of what's threatening to turn Venice into a theme park and the damage that unchecked tourism can still do to one of Europe's most iconic cities. His book is called If Venice Dies, and it serves as a warning for other cities, too. Professor Settis, thanks for being with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for inviting me. Doctor, if you were asked to come in and diagnose the health of Venice, what would the diagnosis be? The diagnosis would be, unfortunately, that it is in great danger now, great danger of losing its own soul, which is the first step in order to lose its own life. Therefore, the title of my book, Venice Dies, 2.6 people are leaving the city every single day now. I think that when something like this happens, uh, we should be all extremely concerned, whatever the city would be, but particularly such an important place for uh, historical memory of the world and, and not just of itself, like Venice. So the population is going down. Is that the disease itself or is that a symptom of the disease? I think it is a symptom of the disease and it contributes to the disease itself because many people who are actually going out of Venice and are going to live somewhere else they then come back daily, on a daily basis, to work in Venice. This means that they cannot afford uh, a home in Venice because now living in the city is really too expensive. You have to be relatively wealthy in order to actually live in the city itself. And uh, the city is becoming a, a city of second homes. Many, many people, particularly wealthy people from all over the world, there were many Americans in, in the past, but now they are the newcomers, such as Russians or uh, Chinese, 
whereby in homes, spectacular homes on the, on the Grand Canal, but then they are living there for very short times. According to an official statistic of the city of Venice, people who, who have a second home in, in, in Venice on average stay there for two and a half days mm. a year. In a year. Which is not really being a citizen of Venice. And it's not good for the um, economy or the fabric of the town. As you said, the soul is dying when this happens. I know there are cities, uh, resorts up in the Alps, for instance, in Switzerland, where the government has actually prohibited people from turning the whole city into vacation condos because, of course, then there's no community. And rich people come in two weeks out of the year. Apparently, that's happening in Venice also. In your book, you talk about how there's one resident for every 140 visitors. You talk about the tourist monoculture. What is tourist monoculture? Tourist monoculture is the idea that the only possible source of revenue and therefore of life for Venetians is tourism. That this city where uh, historically there have been a lot of inventions from uh, the painting of Titian to the music of Vivaldi now would be unable to create anything except for being in the service of tourists. Now, tourism is certainly a very good thing, and I would not uh, not discourage tourists from going to Venice, but I also think that centering everything on tourism and, and claiming that tourism is the only possible source of revenue for any city, including Venice, I think this would be perverse. Is that related to losing your soul? You become a, sort of an adult Disneyland. Yes, because actually I think cities in general, and Venice in particular, were not created for tourists. They were created for citizens. And then the reason why tourists go to Venice is that citizens of Venice were able over many centuries to create the Venice we know, to create a Venice that is full of imagination, full of inventions, full of life. And we don't have to reduce this city to a backdrop for a sort of of Disneyland. Venice will not be, should not be a theme park as it tends to be now. Archaeologist and art historian Salvatore Settis is an emeritus professor at one of Italy's leading graduate schools in Pisa. He's also chairman of the Louvre Museum's Scientific Council and a former director of the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. Professor Settis has written If Venice Dies to challenge the authorities in Venice to take action to protect the character and the history of their beautiful city. We have a link to his book and an editorial he wrote for the New York Times. You'll find them in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mimi's calling in from Fombell in Pennsylvania. Mimi, thanks for your call. You're welcome. I have been hearing all my life, ever since I visited Venice in 1963, that it is stinking. And I personally have seen St. Mark's Square on New Water, and I know it happens very frequently. I am aware of the protests by the locals who live there against the ships being allowed, and I'm basically in agreement with that on the large ships. However, I'm also very sure that a lot of the tourism is from those very ships. So we do plan, that is my husband and I, to visit again soon on a Star Clippers ship. But my main question is, What can I and the general public do to save this historic city? Well, so first of all, let's talk about the sinking of Venice. Dr. Sedis, is Venice actually sinking? Is that something that is a new problem? Is it accelerating? And and what does that mean? 
Well, the great problems of, of climate change and uh, rising sea level, that's not a problem that, that is proper to Venice. This is a, a global problem. But of course, in Venice, it is more dramatic than anywhere else in the world, probably, because Venice historically has always suffered from its vicinity to the sea and from its being based on the sea itself, or rather on the lagoon. Now, one point that it is very important to keep in mind, though, is that uh, what's going on in Venice with those gigantic mega ships is actually accelerating the process. And that uh, when uh, a, a first uh, sub-canal was excavated in the lagoon in the 1960s in order to allow big ships to enter, big ships which were much smaller than the big ships of now, afterwards there was the great flood of 50 years ago. And now some uh, local authorities would like to dig another canal, which would be a disaster for the lagoon. So I think that we should be much more careful in looking at, uh, at Venice's problem. What can we do, as Mimi from Pennsylvania just asked? I think that information, good information, uh, sound information about how things are going is very important, that a public opinion is critically important to convince Italian authorities to move to a different direction, particularly American public opinion is, of course, the most important in the world. We're talking about this massive cruise industry, and it's, it's hard to wish it away. I, I see on the cover of your book, Dr. Setis, you've got this giant cruise ship that dwarfs uh, the Doge's Palace, cutting right across in the basin in front of Campo San Marco. You know, I've been there, and, and the ship is twice as tall as the Doge's Palace. Now, of course, that brings in thousands of tourists that just stampede in and then they stampede out. They don't buy dinner and they don't spend a night there, so they don't leave a lot of money. It also has an impact, I believe, on the fragile ecosystem of the lagoon. What is the impact of these huge cruise ships on the fragile ecosystem of the lagoon that Venice has to live in balance with? These huge mega ships discharge a lot of, of material, such as benzopyrene, which is, which is very dangerous. It's very, very difficult to get official statistics about what they are doing. But according to some statistics published by, by local association for the defense of environment, it, it seems that certain forms of cancer are more frequent in Venice than elsewhere in the same region. And this is certainly one point. Another point is that by moving waters in uh, the lagoon, those gigantic cruise ships are actually changing the, the balance between uh, the lagoon and the many, many islands, not just those on which Venice is built, the many, many islands that are on the lagoon itself. So the, the very movement of the waters is contributing to eroding the stability of Venice's thousands or millions of trees on which the city has been built. I, I know for the case of Rome and for Florence, many cruise visitors come, but the, the ships are moored or parked far away, a two-hour bus ride away. Perhaps Venice could have the cruise industry but eliminate the downside that the ships are causing to the lagoon if the ships were parked further out. Yes, this is one possible solution that has been recommended by, by many people. According to, to some uh, recommendation, instead of Venice, uh, those ships should go to Trieste and then tourists should come to Venice with Perfect. Uh, on smaller ships. That's one of many possible solutions. Mimi, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Dr. Salvatore Settis. His book is If Venice Dies. And Dr. 
Mimi was talking about the rising water, I know there is this famous Aqua Alta project, which is like a series of gates that, that rise up when you have the perfect storm of the barometric pressure and a wind and a high tide and rising sea. When it all happens at the same time, you have this unusually high tide and uh, the city of Venice essentially floods. What is the latest with the Aqua Alta project and is there hope that they can literally make gates around the lagoon to protect the precious city of Venice from that rising water? Well, this is a very controversial project which started in the, in the 80s, so a long time ago. And uh, at the time it was said officially that the project would be ended by over the next five years or so. Now the project is not ended yet, it's under construction, and the cost uh, is much higher than it had been uh, anticipated, and nobody knows whether it will work or not. It's a highly technical problem. The acronym for this project is MOSE. There are those who say that it will work and those who say that it will never work. I hope that sooner or later we will know, because this project is continuously moving its deadline on and on and on. Mm. And unfortunately, in this uh, enormous cost, uh, continuously racing, there are significant costs that are due just to corruption. Something like 2 billion euros have been spent Mm. in corruption. What does the word Mose mean? Is that Moses? Well, Mose means something like barrier against uh, Aqua Alta or something. It's an acronym which has uh-huh. been selected for its, uh, because it looks like in Italian to Mose, i.e. Moses. And Moses know, separated with, uh, the water, uh, huh? Moses separating the waters, but uh, the point is that Moses did separate the waters without corruption, I think. He had no corruption to deal with, and uh, right now the waters <laughs> are not being separated. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dr. Salvatore Settis. His book is If Venice Dies. Doctor, you had a very interesting chapter in your book about Venice as a thinking machine. And, you know, it's a huge investment to keep Venice uh, vibrant and alive and so future generations can enjoy it and be inspired by it and learn from it. And part of the rationale for respecting the value of Venice is to look at its heritage and what it's offered our civilization. When you say Venice is a thinking machine, uh, what are some examples of that? What did you mean by that? I mean that Venice is the supreme example now of the historic city because it's it's the only city in the world or or one of the very few cities in the the world, certainly the most famous, where you are forced to move by foot. It's a city uh, where the relationship between the body of the citizen, the body of the individual and the body of the city is, is crafted according to a balance, to a harmony that almost everywhere else is lost by gigantic construction, by the verticalization of architecture, by the mega cities and so forth and so mm. on. So being in Venice means being somewhere else. You are in, in our contemporary world, but at the same time you feel sensations that are closer to those that other human beings like yourself or me could have felt uh, 200 years ago. And I think that uh, simply this experience of experiencing the space and the architecture this way is something that could help you think about what Mm. the real shape of a city could be for future generations. The problem is that now in our globalized world, which might be the function of, of Venice. We, we have to look for a new function. We cannot reduce Venice to a theme park by which we would visit the city and uh, think nostalgically about its right. past. This is not enough. 
its past has to be in some way useful for our future. And I think that this is the real challenge we have to address. So, Dr. Setis, if you were the uh, director of tourism and you had unlimited budget and no corruption, how would you fix the city? I think the first thing to do would be to invent policies in order to reduce the number of second homes, precisely as they did in Switzerland. By putting a cap, you cannot have uh, more than 20% second homes in a given city. This would be extremely easy, and it's difficult for me to understand why it has not been done. I would think Airbnb is a related challenge. Yeah, Airbnb, but I think that uh, in order to do something uh, positively in favor of the city itself, policies should be developed in order to encourage young people to stay in, uh, in Venice or to move to Venice, to stay there, to live there, to live there the, mm-hmm. their full life, and, and encourage policies to uh, create new jobs. Dr. Setis, so many people love Venice. It's a beloved city. Yet half of the people who visit Venice probably do so on a big cruise ship. Uh, How would you recommend people who want to see Venice, who arguably are part of the problem, how can we enjoy Venice but not be part of the problem? How can we be part of the solution? Well, I think that being part of the solution means, first of all, being aware of the problems. That's certainly the first step. Otherwise, uh, you cannot do uh, anything else. Then, if if you really want to visit Venice... Uh, you might go on a cruise ship or not, but you should put as a as a condition to the tourist company who sells the tickets that you don't want to enter the Grand Canal on the cruise ship itself. If the cruise ship stops somewhere else, you are happy to go to Venice with other means, or you can simply arrive to Venice by plane or by train, which is quite easy. These cruise ships go in front of the Doge's Palace just for the spectacle. They can get to the port without doing that. Just for the spectacle. So if there was a concern that this became politically uh, incorrect or destructive for Venice, cruise ships might find it was in there. They might think it's good for their business not to disturb the basin in front of the Doge's Palace. If an increasing number of, uh, of potential tourists would say, well, I'm happy to be in your ship, but I don't want to enter the Grand Canal on your ship. You you put your ship somewhere else. Otherwise, I will not buy my ticket. I think that this would really help. Dr. Salvatore Setis, thank you so much for your book, If Venice Dies. Best wishes with your work. And let's just pretend uh, you and I are in Venice and uh, we're walking around. It's the evening. Uh, where would you take me just to make sure that I really appreciate the beautiful city of Venice? I, I would take in one of the places which are much less of a tourist destination, let's say on the, in the church of San Giovanni in Bragora, which is not very far from the Doge's Palace, which is the church where uh, Antonio Vivaldi has been baptized. And it's a small church, unpretentious, but filled with works by, by Venetian masters and by the music of uh, Vivaldi, which is constantly there. So this is the true soul of Venice, which is still there if you only want to find it. Dr. Salvatore Setis, uh, author of If Venice Dies, Mille Grazie and Buon Lavoro. Thank you. Thank you so much.
In the 18th century, Venice was a required stop on the grand tour that young gentlemen of means embarked on as part of their coming of age. It was known for its casinos and courtesans, carnival and Casanova. Historian Lawrence Burgreen takes the mask off one of history's most famous womanizers, Giacomo Casanova, next on Travel with Rick Steves. After nearly 300 years, the name Casanova still conjures up images of a legendary romantic, or maybe just an unbridled libertine. Historian Lawrence Burgreen has delved into Casanova's extensive autobiography to see what his uncommon life shows us about the world of 18th century Venice. He's just written Casanova, the life of a seductive genius. Lawrence, thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. What an incredible individual. I mean, of all the people who who give us a peek into what was going on into the 1700s in Europe, and at least in Venice, there's nobody like him, is there? No, there really isn't. Um, He was part of his times, but because he wrote this extraordinary 12-volume memoir, you have a giant, it's almost like a novel, canvas of life of commoners and kings and loves and duels. And they give a very, very complete picture, not only of his life, but of many people around him. It's a tremendous crowd portrait. And he was living in the, the like, the most amazing world anyways, Venice. Yes. Uh, it was, I mean, Venice was the superpower of Europe for, for centuries, but in the 1700s, it was a decadent, yes. you know, fabulously wealthy city, but clearly on the decline, right? Yes, it was uh, deteriorating rather quickly. It had become a center for vice across Europe. Tourists came, especially from England, to Venice to gamble and to associate with the courtesans there and in various brothels. It was notorious. It was sort of like the Las Vegas of Europe in a certain way. So Casanova came of age in that environment. In fact, his own mother, who was a famous actress and courtesan, Zanetta Ferrucci, was part of that environment and epitomized it. So she was a Casanova before him and had many lovers, traveled across (laughs) Europe, performed widely, and was quite notorious. This 12-volume story of my life, uh, his memoirs, tell us about that. Was he aware of uh, the historical value of this, or was he just showing off his sexual exploits, or how does it read? (laughs) All of the above. Uh, During his lifetime, he was considered a scapegrace. He was a gambler. He was a duelist. He was a 'er ne'er-do-well, a petty thief. Um, He had literary aspirations that were really never fulfilled. At one point, he met Voltaire when he got to Geneva and thought of themselves as being on an equal plane. But Voltaire was an enormously influential Enlightenment figure. And Casanova, from a literary point of view, was uh, not even a, Hmm. a wannabe. However, during the last 12 years of his life, He became a librarian. He loved libraries outside of Prague at a giant castle called Ducks and spent 12 years writing about all his exploits, drawing on diaries and journals that he Hmm. had collected over the years. Lawrence, could you say for the last 12 years of his life, he was no longer young and sexy enough to be the the, the Casanova he wanted to be, so he would just wallow in his memories and and, and write about it? Right. The last 12 years of his life, Casanova keenly felt the approach of old age. He was in his mid-50s and then his 60s, and he had lost his uh, sense of virility. He suffered from repeated cases of venereal disease, which was an 
occupational hazard of being a libertine. He loved books, and since he was down on his luck, he accepted a sinecure as a librarian for a nobleman at a giant castle outside of Prague. And there, in relative seclusion, he was down to his last two or three girlfriends, he wrote these memoirs over and over and over every day and never actually got to the end of his life, but covered Hmm. most of his life. And they're the famous memoirs. I actually began this book when I heard that the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris had acquired the original manuscript, which he wrote in French, for 10 million euros, which was the most they'd Hmm. ever paid for anybody's manuscripts. And I was curious Hmm. to see what was so terrific. And I hopped a plane and went there to the uh, Bibliothèque and uh, held the manuscript in his own handwriting in my hand. And I realized that it was an extraordinary document of personal experience. It was also completely unexpurgated. Since he didn't expect it to be published in his lifetime, and in fact it wasn't, Hmm. um, he told all. It is the ultimate tell-all. So any kind of gossip, scandal, horrible things or embarrassing things about himself or other people, they're all in there. And uh, it it really is a remarkable portrait. But how credible is it? I mean, if you're writing your own story and if you have the personality of Casanova, you're going to make yourself even more Casanova (laughs) than Casanova himself, Right, right. Uh, You're right. He was very narcissistic, and that's a very good question. I kept asking myself, how much of this is made up and invented, fabricated? (laughs) However, almost everything checks out. For example, many of the women he was involved in wrote letters to him. So you hear their side of the story as well. I read your the chapter on uh, his escape from the prison in Venice, and it's yeah, just like yeah. a it's like a thriller. It could be the script of a, of a great movie. When he escaped, he was the only person ever to have escaped from the Leads, which was in the roof of the Doge's Palace in Venice, and it it is like a thriller. Is this the prison across the Bridge of Sighs from the Doge's no. Palace? No, people often think it is. Mm-hmm. This was an even worse prison, which was on the in the top floor of the palace itself, and it was considered a a death trap. People in there froze in the winter. They roasted in the summer. He was determined to get out, and he spent almost a year planning an escape. Mm -hmm. And he finally did with the assistance of a defrocked priest who was in the next cell. And they escaped one night and let themselves down by a rope Mm. and got into a waiting gondola and got the heck out of Venice. Mm. This was actually his best-known exploit in Mm. his lifetime. And it forms part of this giant 12-volume memoir canvas. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lawrence Burgreen, and his book is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. He got in trouble for reading forbidden books. Uh, what's the context of that in the 1700s? Uh, we don't really know exactly because he never saw the charges. There was no trial. He didn't know why exactly he was jailed. But the thought was that agents of the Venetian Inquisition were prying in his apartment in Venice and saw that he had books of the Kabbalah, which at that point were forbidden, although they were quite popular. It was originally a a Jewish mystical book, which at that point was in vogue and becoming Christianized, adapted for Christian mysticism. There was a a character who I quote in the book named Manuzzi, who wrote reports about Casanova and the books he was supposedly reading, which included Mm. the Kabbalah, and that was enough to get him in hot water. Now, another theory has that he slept with the wrong woman who was allied with some powerful enemy. Oh, so that would be a good way to get rid of him, is blame him for reading reading the wrong books, even though it's a, yes. it's a lover's squabble. Lawrence, you talk about he's a dualist and he's a libertine. What is a dualist and what's a libertine in the <laughs> 1700s? 
Well, a duelist, uh, dueling was very popular in the 1700s and the 18th century, either with swords or with pistols, and people could be drawn into duels for the slightest disagreement, especially with nobility. And he was, at one point uh, in his travels when he was in Germany, drawn into a duel with the Count Brniki, who was Polish. Does somebody come out of that dead, or do you just shoot each other until... Um, I mean, I've heard that the, the guns were so crude that you would stand sideways and you'd suck your belly in and you'd just take turns trying to hit each other until one of you finally lucked out. Well, he, he didn't know which kind of weapon it would be because the Count could choose either a sword, mm-hmm. uh, which Casanova would have preferred, or a gun. As it happened, it was a gun. So Casanova writes a really heart-stopping account of the agony, the tension surrounding this duel. And in fact, he was got off easy in a sense. Uh, Count Bernicke was unharmed. Casanova took a bullet in his arm, which he gradually recovered from. Mm -hmm. So he managed to survive it. And then oddly enough, in this very European way, these two people who were very different and enemies then became friends of a sort. (laughs) So a libertine is another concept of the 18th century. It had to do partly with the concept of liberty and reason and freedom, which in this country, in the United States, was primarily uh, the rule of law and reason, but in Europe also meant very explicitly sexual freedom, which applied in Venice and then in Casanova's second home in Paris and across Europe. So a libertine was someone who didn't get married, who was usually promiscuous and really not judgmental about moralistic matters. Casanova was not the only one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Libertinism was a very popular philosophy. The uh, subtitle of your book, Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. This guy, he's got a hundred or something partners. Right. What was his uh, modus operandi? How, how can you be so intriguing and appealing to women? Because you also talk about he was the archetypical bad boyfriend. Yes, <laughs> he really was because he cheated on a lot of these women. You know, in his relentlessly honest way, he also described his many, many failures uh, with women, women whom he pursued and didn't manage to catch and his shortcomings, women who spurned him. But his success, he said that he didn't conquer, he submitted. I I think there's some truth to that. But when he decided he was going to court a woman or seduce a woman, he focused on her with great attention. He had a tremendous sense of empathy. And keep in mind, this was the age of libertines, so women were as willing to go along with it as he was. Um, He would find a private place. He would have chilled champagne. He would have oysters, which he considered an aphrodisiac and a lot of privacy. So he would set the scene very carefully for a seduction with women. And if he couldn't find a woman who we would consider to be particularly desirable, he also consorted with prostitutes and various lowlifes who could be had for a modest amount of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Casanova was nothing if not randy. He came to regret this and become somewhat more melancholic and mournful in his later years when he was writing his memoirs. But certainly when he was younger, he was very unrestrained. Would he flatter women and just, just give them so much attention and then he was just focused on one one victim or one prize or something like this? Yes, he would flatter them. He would give them gifts. He would write them letters. Uh, he would write them poetry. He would do it, whatever he thought it took huh. to, you know, to get them into bed. And he was very attuned to giving as well as receiving pleasure. He didn't see sex as a one-way street And he saw it as interactive. I think women particularly appreciated that. And he writes about some of his sexual interests and techniques 
in his memoirs that gives you a sense of what he was like as a lover. This also helped to overcome the fact Casanova wasn't that handsome particularly. Uh, he looked rather awkward. He was rather tall, ungainly, uh, with a large beak-like nose. Men found him strange, but women often found him very charming and compelling despite his odd appearance. And some of them really fell in love with Casanova. There were several women from good families who realized that Casanova had many redeeming qualities and wanted to marry him. And each time he avoided the snares of matrimony. I think in his later years he regretted it. Mm -hmm. But at the time he didn't want any part of it. So he would stay with them for a while and then he would move on either to a better situation or a worse one. Historian Lawrence Burgreen's taking us to the world of 18th century Venice right now on Travel with Rick Steves, as lived by the infamous Giacomo Casanova. His latest book is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. You can also find out about his biographies of Columbus, Marco Polo, and Magellan on his website at lawrenceburgreen.com, spelled L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E-B-E-R-G-R-E-E-N. You write about how he, he had a lot of um, sexually transmitted diseases, apparently a whole bunch of them over the course of his lifetime. And you also mentioned there were condoms in the 1700s. Uh, yeah. Did these work or were people aware of the diseases and, and how effectively could they avoid them? Venereal disease in various forms was quite common because of the promiscuity. And people were certainly aware of it because of uh, obvious symptoms of it. When Casanova was coming into maturity, condoms made of sheep intestines were becoming popular. They were generally manufactured in England and then sold across Europe. The, the technology didn't necessarily work that well. Casanova was what we'd call today an early adopter, and he wrote with pride about using them partly to prevent pregnancy and partly to prevent the transmission of disease. But, you know, it was very erratic in its use, and Casanova had, by his count, 11 cases of venereal disease probably gonorrhea. His idea of a cure, which was a common one at that time, was mercury treatments, but that was just poisoning himself. So hmm. it would spontaneously go into remission, and then he considered himself cured, even though he wasn't, and then it would emerge again at some other time in the future. But it wasn't really a total deterrent, and it seemed to be just part of sexual behavior at that period. It sounds like he was addicted to sex. Did he have any long-term meaningful relationships? And is there any uh, sense of how many children he spawned and if he would just drop a woman once she becomes pregnant? He said he had eight children, and he may have had about eight. His relationships with them was arm's length at best. Uh, he was very proud of having these children, but he didn't raise them. He wasn't nurturing. He didn't take care of them or pay for their education mm. or well-being or anything like that. He left them with their mothers. And in terms of the women and how they felt about it, I, I think they took it as it as it came. He so they were was, libertine uh, also. They were also libertine, and they had many lovers as well. We know this from diaries of other people. Casanova wasn't the only, if you will, Casanova on the loose in those days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we heard about the exploits of other libertines in Venice and uh, really across Europe and in England. Nor was he perhaps even the most successful. There were some others who were higher on the social scale. Casanova was lowborn, who mm -hmm. had more lovers, especially royalty. When he got to the court of France, King Louis XV had a wife and a number of children, but he also had an official mistress who organized all his other mistresses for the benefit of the king, who basically spent most of his days in bed with one mistress or another. 
What do you think his take would be on Tinder today? Would he have been a big uh, fan of uh, being able to just um, dial through the Internet and find a good partner? I've actually thought about that, and my publishers asked me about that. It's hard to say because he was also a very private person, and the sort of semi-public yet anonymous nature of online dating and Tinder, I think he might have found off-putting. And he also might have said, well, everybody's a libertine now. What, what difference does it make? So he might have felt like he was just one more you know, of the anonymous masses. You wrote that he, he used sex as a weapon of class destruction, which I thought was very interesting. Sex as a weapon of class destruction. What did he mean? Right. Well, I mean, I, that was a sort of play on the phrase of uh, mass destruction. What I meant was that he particularly wanted to go to bed with women who were highborn. He was, as, an, as the son of two actors in Venice, he was almost a nobody and uh, had no path to fame or fortune. So he was attracted to women, the higher on the social scale, the better. Perhaps the best known example, he writes about at great length, it's in the book, is Madame Durfay, who was one of the richest women in Paris. She was a widow. She was perhaps uh, 60 years old, and she was uh, very devoted to alchemy. And he writes about how he shamelessly exploited her and her interest in alchemy for personal gain. Meanwhile, she thought that he was actually in love with her, and in order to encourage this illusion of hers, he promised that he could get her pregnant, which seems unlikely with a woman of that age, and not only that, that she would become pregnant with a replica of herself. So this child would be born and would become an exact replica of Madame Durfay, and she was naive enough to believe this. So this was an, as an example of Casanova's guile, mm -hmm. uh, which was really not very pleasant to observe. So there was a charming side to him, but another side that was, uh, you know, very off-putting. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Lawrence Burgreen. His book is called Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. And Lawrence, if we could just finish with, you know, a lot of us are dreaming about going to Venice. Yes. After reading your book... And then we go to Venice. Uh, what is some experience in Venice we might know to have and to appreciate that we wouldn't know otherwise if we didn't read your book? Everybody goes to the Doge's Palace. If you're particularly interested in Casanova, you can see the leads, which they call Ipiombi, and you can stand in Casanova's cell, which is a huge, dark closet, which immediately induces claustrophobia. So you can see where he you know, was confined and where he suffered. Uh, you can see some evidence of, of the Redato, which was the gambling area of Venice where Casanova would go to gamble all the time. And you can basically see all the streets and all the sites and all the canals that he writes about. Also, uh, some of the islands. He writes about his um, affairs with nuns, which we haven't talked about, who were in convents on various of the islands of Venice in the lagoon. And, you know, they're a very, very short trip hmm. from St. Mark's Square. Lawrence Burgreen, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for writing a fascinating book, Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeley, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and to our colleagues at NPR West for production help today. You can find guest information, search the show archives, and listen again on demand. Take a look each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.